0: The groups that you would want to work for see their physicians as the business itself. And this is part of why corporate practice of medicine laws exist. You want your physicians to be the business. You don't want them to be necessarily just seen
1: as an expense to minimize. That is the voice of today's guest, Dr. Leon Adelman. And you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. Hello my friends and welcome back to the show and if you're new to Stimulus you've come to the right place. It's great to have you. My name is Rob Orman. I am a physician coach and what we do here on the Stimulus podcast is break down ideas, tactics, strategies, habits and mindsets to help you live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. And here's a few announcements. The Flameproof Anti Burnout course put on by Scott Weingart and me is now enrolling. The second cohort, what is the deal with Flame Proof? Almost every clinician I know, include myself in this, was shortchanged in their medical training, molded into an excellent practitioner, laser focused, a shockingly deep fund of knowledge, but given virtually no tools for retaining joy and equanimity throughout a medical career, the flameproof course teaches you I guess what you could call the hidden anti-burnout curriculum. I don't know how hidden it is. I'm just not really there. This course is designed to take you from surviving to thriving. Hmm, I don't know, could that be a tagline? I don't know, we'll, we'll workshop it. The start date for the second cohort of Flameproof is February 1st, 2024. Cohort one, the one that is currently in session, sold out. If you wanna take a look at what Flameproof is all about, I will have a link to it in the show notes so that you can do so. And a little teaser here, a little teaser, May 1st through 3rd, 2024, we're going to have a three-day live event in Bend, Oregon. Mark your calendars, save those dates because you're going to want to be there. More coming soon, enough said. To the matter at hand, today's show, private equity and venture Capital in Medicine. The same people who invest in Uber and the UFC and the container store are buried up to their elbows in healthcare. And how's that going? How's it going? How's that impact you? We're going to get into it. also going to touch on physician unions, the lawsuits that are flying fast and furious in this venture capital private equity sphere, some potential dirty-ish deeds. And we'll also ask, could private equity be a good thing? All that and more from our guest, who you heard in the cold open, Dr. Leon Adelman. Leon is an emergency physician and the co-founder of Ivy Clinicians, which is a software company that simplifies the emergency medicine job search. And doubling down on transparency, Ivy Clinicians was a sponsor to this show I think like a year ago or half a year ago, but that is not why Leon is here. I asked Leon to come on the show because he is an expert in this area. He is the purveyor of the emergency medicine workforce newsletter, as well as being the chair of the emergency workforce section of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Leon is a man about town. Let's just stop his bio there. A whole bunch of more stuff in the show notes if you want to read all about Leon. But let's get into this. Private equity in medicine. Is it the devil? is it something worse is it not as bad as we think here we go my friends we are going seedy we're going underbelly it's not our usual mo but I, I think leon the bold soul is not afraid to go there leon so great to have you yeah rob it's a really
0: fantastic honor to be here and i think underbelly is a nice transition because I've been listening to your podcast and learning from your podcast since 2009 when I was an intern. And the first podcast I remember was when you taught me to double glove when treating, <laughs> when doing a manual disimpaction for constipation.
1: So there's your underbelly. It's double glove and triple lube. That's the sequence. <laughs> it's funny. When I was doing clinical podcasts, the ones that always had the most traction it was a pediatric fever was always number one. And mm-hmm. then it was anything that had to do with the anus rectum colon form bodies thereof or stool. People used to think that's this guy's specialty, but you know what? All you guys, you were the ones listening. Who was downloading those podcasts? That's what I have to say. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, it was certainly me. I... All right. I want to start out with something that when it first started out, it seemed like a bad idea. And now that it's well-established, it seems to me like a worse idea. And that is venture capital or private equity in medicine. Specifically, I think that this is how it works. I don't know the full structure, so I'm hoping to get some clarity. Specifically, private equity owning physician groups. And maybe I don't have that quite right. So paint the picture of what this looks like right now. Great question. About a quarter
0: of emergency departments now are staffed by or a medical practice that is owned by a private equity company. Private equity is basically a lot like the way that we pay for our houses, right? So you take a huge loan to buy this big thing, and then over time, you hope that the thing is going to appreciate in value put a little bit into it and if you make a little bit of money on that then you make more because there's leverage if you lose that's a big problem the challenge though with private equity is that we're not dealing in emergency medicine or in medicine in general we're not dealing with houses and we're not dealing with a few bucks here and there we're dealing with people's lives. And so when you hyper-financialize medicine, you start getting into some challenges.
1: Tell me about Envision. It just sounded really bad, but what was that? And then what went south? Envision is now
0: bankrupt. Envision was the largest staffer of emergency medicine. It used to be called MCARE. They- then grew into a multi-specialty practice all over the country and had over 400 or still have over 400 emergency medicine contracts where they went into where they came into challenges is because of their debt. So when Envision was bought by the private equity company, so they were bought by KKR, which is the same company that the book Barbarians at the Gates is written about. Mm. So they've had a long, illustrious history, KKR has. So they bought Envision for $9.9 billion and saddled Envision with about $6 billion of debt. And that's what I was talking about before with buying a house where you put 20% down, 80% is the debt. They had $6 billion of debt to pay off. So Envision was making money and they still had money in the bank and they are still existing and still paying their employees and their doctors. They just can't keep up with their debt. And that's why they filed for bankruptcy in May, 2023.
1: And then what happens with those clinicians and the groups and the hospitals? Do they all of a sudden become unstaffed or is it just, Hey, it's business. We declared for bankruptcy so that we can get rid of our debt, but yeah, you know what? You guys are still going to keep working yeah so one
0: of the one of the, like wonderful parts of the American economy, and it was set out really right from the beginning of the foundation of this country were the bankruptcy rules. And bankruptcy allows for companies like this to continue being an entity. And so what Envision is doing is essentially going through a managed restructuring. So what does that look like? It looks like, The doctors at the Envision sites are still getting paid. The care that was being delivered in April 2023 is still being delivered in July 2023. But Envision now is no longer owned by KKR. They KKR had to give up its ownership stake in Envision during this bankruptcy process. And basically, the bank, their banks that loaned them money... Now are the owners of Envision those bankers to the bank essentially? They're not in the business of delivering healthcare, right? So they don't want to be in this business. They want just if the bank repossessed your house, they want to to sell off this asset that they now have that they never really wanted to have. So who are the buyers, right? Who are the next owners of these Envision contracts? Part of what Envision set up was a joint venture with HCA Healthcare. So HCA is the biggest private hospital system in the country. They are very profitable. What HCA has chosen to do is to buy out Envision's stake in that joint venture. They now own 90% of that. It's They haven't officially announced that they run it yet, but there is an entity called Velasco And that entity basically owns Envision contracts at HCA sites. So then there are all of the other Envision contracts, and we don't know yet. It is not public and it's not clear that the decision has been made who
1: the buyers of those contracts will be. And there's recently been a big lawsuit surrounding this. What is that about and how is that playing out?
0: Yeah, so this is a really big deal in emergency medicine and medicine generally. So the biggest change in the practice Of medicine, the business of medicine over the last 10 years is the entry of private equity companies buying medical practices. And it's not just emergency medicine, it's dermatology, it's ophthalmology. They're now getting into ortho and cardiology. This is an across the board change in the business of physician practices. There's a problem, though, there's a legal problem with this whole structure, which is 38 states. Out of the 50, 51, if you count DC, that have corporate practice of medicine laws that essentially say a company like Envision that is not a doctor, it's not run by doctors, cannot practice medicine in that state. So a corporation cannot be the practicer of medicine. For example, in California, that's defined very clearly in the law that ownership of the practice is part of the definition of practicing medicine. So doing things like hiring and firing and setting up clinical guidelines for pulmonary embolism guidelines for that emergency department that have an envisioned name on it. It's pretty clear in the law that would fall into the basket of corporate practice of medicine. AAEM, the American Academy of Emergency Medicine they set up a they have a physician group that staffs a few ERs. Well, Envision took over one of their contracts, which then gave AAEM and AEM's physician group standing, so the ability to sue for damages. And that's exactly what AEM did. They sued in the state of California, they sued sued Envision and their corporate entity, KKR, the, the owners of Envision for illegal corporate practice of medicine
1: is that lawsuit still going on or is it has it concluded? Yeah good questions It's
0: like you said murky you started the conversation with Murky this is murky so envision filed in federal court saying that they are protected from Aam's lawsuit by their bankruptcy proceedings Aam, responded with, you're not protected because we're not filing for monetary damages. We are filing to create a principle in law to better define the corporate practice of medicine. And so since this is a non-financial lawsuit, your financial protections through bankruptcy should not stop you
1: from being sued. That's still in litigation in federal court. And for listeners, the history on this, I can remember back in the mid 90s when I was a resident and the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, this was their big fight is against corporate medicine or contract management groups. That I think they wrote a book or put out a book. Robert McNamara, I think he was the head of it, wrote The Rape of Emergency Medicine. And it is exactly what this is. And so it sounds like this situation where they had this window that, oh, here is our chance. And now we can basically say, you should actually not even be able to exist. You're exactly right that
0: AAM has been after this. They're, they are a very focused entity and focused on the corporate practice of medicine and keeping physician practices in physician hands. We'll see if this is their big break.
1: All right. So... Back in the day, back in the Halcyon days when there was just corporate medicine or the the contract management, you would be call it, you mentioned MCARE and Envision. So these management groups that own a bunch of contracts. So you had these kind of these corporations and then came this private equity buying them out. But is there a difference between what's going on with these groups when they're just the CMD or the contract management group versus once the private equity comes into play. For me, this is all very foggy. It certainly is foggy. I would
0: honestly say that private equity in itself is no more or less good or bad than other corporate structures. The main differentiation is is your primary goal financial profit for shareholders or is your primary goal the care of patients? And the reason for corporate practice of medicine laws in the first place was to protect this prioritization. So a physician takes an oath to put patients first, right? So there are financial transactions, but the priority for the physician is patient care. And and we have a professional responsibility to those patients. If you change that to finances first, there are potentially interests that are not patient first.
1: Okay. You're saying it in such a nice healed way. So clinicians need to make money. There is a financial incentive for working. No doubt there is, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of ways that you can make money. And most clinicians that I know, and most nurses that I know, and people that are involved in the actual delivery of patient care are mission-driven. Right. And as you were describing it before, with private equity, it is one- Hundred percent, but maybe it's like ninety nine point nine 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 percent. Like there's like an, an outlier, but all, uh, close to hundred percent financially driven. So you have clearly this friction, but I don't want to give private equity just out of hand short shrift because I don't have a, a depth of knowledge here. So is the profit motive of private equity? And I ask this as a sincere question: in any way serving patient care? Yes. So there are ways that
0: that the profit motive can lead to great patient care. So profit is set up in predetermined ways. So the payers of healthcare will pay for whatever it is that they say they're going to pay for in systems where there is value-based payment or 90-day bundles for hip replacement where you can make more money by essentially keeping that person with the hip replacement out of readmissions and out of nursing homes and being back home and walking. There are structures where the profit motive really does work. It is not obvious that this is one of them, that emergency medicine is one of them.
1: (laughs) Okay. What was it, HCA? You were talking about HCA before, and they recently, this was revealed through reports and it was on the news. And I think, I'm not sure if this is under investigation, that when we're talking about the profit motive, that they are encouraging staff to transition more patients to palliative and end of life care, thereby, or at least the assumption is increasing the churn and boosting the hospital quality scores. And there was a recent article on this in Fierce Healthcare that I got from your newsletter that showed there were two reports on this, that both reports outline how hospital mortality rates are directly linked to the incentive payment calculations of top executives and hospital administrators. So <laughs> you're always, wow, administrators are growing tenfold and clinicians are hardly growing at all. And well, wait a second. And why is the CEO make $10 million and they're saying that we're we're really hurting for money? Listen, listen, CEOs of most hospitals, that's not the case, but we're talking about an extreme example. Now, it may be that HCA's policies are being misrepresented here because you and I both know that palliative care is often underutilized. But looking at some of the data, and I will put a link in the show notes to that data, listeners. If you want to look at it, I, I would say, by my look at it, there is signal strong signal, or at least like like we would say as the as, as scientists, there's association. I'm putting that in. There. I don't know why I'm putting that in air quotes. It's there's association or signal that HCA may yes be gaming the system at patients' expense. What's your take on this?
0: Yeah, so HCA is incredibly good at what it does. And what it does is figure out where the financial incentives are and go after it. The company does at times come up against lines, whether those lines are ethical or legal. So things like palliative care. So when I have worked at nonprofit hospitals that are really well run, we also worked hard to ensure that say, our ICU mortality wasn't artificially inflated because patients who should have been categorized as palliative care, patients who were comfort measures only didn't get properly coded. And so the hospital got dinged for that financially and reputationally. HCA is incredibly good at ensuring that when the financial and quality incentives are set up, that they play the game and they play it to win. Sometimes that gets them into big trouble. So they were sued a few years ago for incentivizing admission. So basically telling ER doctors, if you're thinking about potentially sending somebody home versus admission, you should probably admit them to the hospital. You can't do that. That made it to 60 minutes and they were sued and they had to settle on that one. The current, another current controversy. It was there were two whistleblowers in Asheville, North Carolina who alleged that team health and HCA are encouraging them to call trauma activations with very liberal criteria, things like old person fell down, trauma activation. And the reason for that is a trauma activation gets you an
1: extra 1000 or $2,000. Oh, man. This happens everywhere. I have seen this. The dispersal of this practice is across the country that really, this is a trauma activation? Oh, yes. We are encouraged to do that. I'm not going to say where I've seen that happen, but it's a lot of places. It's a thing. It's a thing. I want to stay on private equity just a little longer here. I was talking with a friend yesterday, knew we were having this, so we were going to talk about private equity. And he said something really interesting. He said, Now that there is so much private equity involved, I wonder if it will ever be possible to have universal healthcare or to have a single payer system. Now, some are certainly in favor of that, some are not in favor of that. But what's your take on that statement? And do you think it would be possible? Obviously, there's no way you could know this, but you're well-versed in all of this. The, possible for us to get to a single-payer system, universal health care. This is quite
0: possibly the only health policy joke I know. Might be the only uh, health policy joke out there. <laughs> so, so here's the health policy joke. So a professor of public policy and health policy dies and, and goes to the pearly gates of heaven. And Peter's there guarding the, the pearly gates. And Peter says... You've done some amazing work and thousands of people have gotten better care thanks to the things you have written and people you've inspired and students you've taught. We are going to let you ask God one question and he will answer it honestly. So he thinks, okay, one question for God. Okay, Peter, can you ask God whether there will be universal health insurance in the United States? So Peter trudges, you know, pass the gates, ask God, comes back a few minutes later and says, I have the answer for you. God told me from on high. He says there will be universal healthcare in the United States, just not in my lifetime.
1: <laughs> hey. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I just flew in from New York and boy, are my arms tired. I'll be here all week.
0: Tip right. the waitress, try the meal. So here's the more nuanced answer. Private equity might actually move us closer. And here's why I think that might be the case. Private equity is not the only financial or corporate entity in healthcare. There is is a trillion or trillions dollar business or sector of our economy, 20 plus percent of our economy. What is different about private equity is their leverage interest rates are going up, reimbursement is going down. If you are leveraged the way that private equity companies are leveraged, that might not work very well in an economy like we have now with high interest rates and and low reimbursement for physician care. So if there is, if there are a bunch of envisions, right? If envision is just the first domino to fall, then people are going to start saying, is this corporatization, does this corporatization thing make all that much sense? And that will lead to a a bigger discussion of who should be running physician practices. Mm. That's actually a little bit of a different question from who should be running the insurance companies, right? Mm. And so the... Insurance side is winning this game. In a world where reimbursement is going down and there's all this complexity out there, insurance companies love 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 that dynamic. They have the the fog of war and an excuse to pay doctors less. You can see that in their in United Healthcare or Blue Cross Blue Shield. They are doing very well right now. I do not think the government will be taking them over any time soon.
1: Going to break in for a moment to let you know about some of our free resources at roborman.com. These were created to address very specific stress points in medical practice. To wit, we've got scripting, your least favorite conversations. You know, why reinvent the wheel every time you have one of your least favorite conversations? have a framework that works and doesn't deplete you for charting. There are my favorite documentation templates and the classic in its fourth edition, the quick and dirty guide to calling consults. I know many of you have already availed yourself to one or all of these. And if you have yet to, you can click on the freebies link on the website menu and you will be rocking. Or if not rocking, you will at least be on the page where you can get the goods, which is that's kind of rocking. Back to the show. I have clients, have many clients who work with contract management groups. We talked about Envision and MCare. There's lots of them. CMGs, let's call them CMGs. And one of the challenges that they face more frequently and with much higher amplitude is staffing. And Mm -hmm. by that I mean having adequate clinician staffing, not to feel continually overwhelmed and underwater. And a common refrain, this has become even more common since COVID, but a common refrain is they'll be working in a pretty big emergency department. One where you think, wow, there'd probably be like three or four physicians working that. And there will be regularly one doc and multiple APPs. Now it's all in a spectrum, but everyone is just pinning it to the max and the docs, APPs, and and no one's feeling great about this. And then the docs go to admin, they say, hey, we need more coverage. And then admin says, oh yeah, let's just take a look at the data. You are on average seeing X patients per hour, which is right where you should be. So no extra staffing is needed. And the conversation's over. Whereas those who are in independent groups and to a lesser extent, those who are employed by local hospitals, I think the hospital employee is like mm. the middle ground, but they say, hey, we're getting crushed. We are getting crushed, or we're getting crushed at this time of day, or you know, we're feeling understaffed and we're unable to keep up on patients or documentation. We would like some extra staff, or we'd like to be staffed differently. It is a much easier sell. It's never fully easy, but
0: it's easier. I personally have been on both sides of this. I've been in democratic, medium-sized groups with a lot of responsiveness, and I've been in large groups. And you're right, different groups have different levels of responsiveness. The groups that you would want to work for see, it, see their physicians as the business itself. And this is part of why corporate practice of medicine laws exist? You want your physicians to be the business. You don't want them to be necessarily just seen as an expense to minimize. And I think the best phrasing of this was when I worked at Wake Emergency Physicians in in central North Carolina. So they have a core tenant that quality of shift is as important as quality of care. And the reason that they say that is because if you, if they treat their doctors well and the doctors have good shifts and are essentially ready for those shifts and taken care of, they will then provide that high level of care. And providing that high level of care will keep their contracts, but also keep those doctors with that group for a whole lifetime worth of of being in that profession. In order to have those ethos, it is hard to get that when it's a profit first organization.
1: I have never heard that term quality of shift. And that is so astute that really considering what is the experience of the clinician and it does affect everything. It absolutely affects patient care. And one thing to ask the people when you're interviewing at a place is that quality of shift metric. Mm. So consolidation of medical care, consolidation of groups with the CMGs or the private equity or whatever, there's most certainly downsides of consolidation. You have fewer owners. And I uh, quote, quoting you, I don't know if this is quoting you, quoting someone else in the history of the world, no one has ever washed a rental car. There's lower employee clinician. Compensation. Decision-making is further from the frontline clinician. And it turns you from an owner into being labor. It turns you from an owner into a renter. And you had mentioned plus sides of consolidation, right? So stronger negotiating terms with insurance companies, more efficient back office operations like billing and scheduling. How much actually the clinician sees on that? I don't know how much of an advantage that is to them. And you were also talking about better positioning to participate in value-based care. Maybe you have this really efficient algorithm for pulmonary embolism or some such. What is your take on... So there, I'm talking about the the positives, talking about the negatives, the net on this consolidation. This is a net negative, or you know what? Maybe it's a wash. Maybe it's a net positive. It is a complicated question, but what's
0: not complicated is the effects that we're seeing from consolidation. Consolidation is happening. It's happening quickly. And almost every study of consolidation in healthcare has shown two things. One is prices to patients go up and quality of care usually doesn't change all that much. And if it does change, it's slightly to the negative other effects on the physician side are that if consolidation gets to a point where it is strongly consolidated so there there are only a few employers in a certain market in for one profession pay for that profession goes down there is strong evidence for that which makes sense because you've lost your competitive choices. Emergency medicine is as consolidated as any profession in medicine. The AMA actually just came out with a report based on a 2022 survey that emergency medicine emergency physicians had the lowest rate of being employed by physician-owned groups of any specialty they
1: they survey. Let's talk about the No Surprises Act. And By my understanding, this was designed to protect patients from unexpected medical bills, protect them. That is brilliant. But it seems to have become this horrible morass that I no longer understand. I don't even know what's going on. What is going on with this
0: thing? So a a quick divergence, surprises are overrated. So actually when there's one of the great studies out there compared people who knew the ending of movies to the to folks who did not know the ending of movies. And actually the folks who knew the ending of a movie with a plot twist enjoyed the movie more than the ones that did not. So surprises <laughs> are, are sometimes overrated. So in this case in the no surprises in the no surprises act, you're exactly right. Emergency physicians were all in favor or not all emergency physicians were in favor, but Vocal emergency physicians were in favor of this, including the American College of Emergency Physicians, AAEM. And the reason they were in favor was because we are not, we do not go into emergency medicine to bankrupt our patients. We are there to take care of our patients. We want to see anyone, anytime and take good care of them with the resources that they have. So the No Surprises Act basically said instead of If you can't come to a negotiated agreement with an insurer in advance, so if you become out of network, instead of sending that bill, right? So the patient comes in, they get uh, laceration repaired, it costs 500 bucks. You you don't have a, a deal with the insurer. What the groups used to do is say, we're charging $500, send it to the patient. You got a service, pay us $500. And then the patient was like, I'm insured, I'm not getting this bill. And so they would then have all these phone calls and negotiations with their insurer, and somebody would end up paying. Well, that's not how anybody would set up a rational system. So the No Surprise Act passed in 2020 and basically said, instead of sending that bill to the patient, you have to go to arbitration. The physician practice puts one number in, the insurer puts another number in and the arbitrator decides based on a bunch of criteria that are clearly set out in the law, which one of those is closest to a fair number. So the physician says it's 500 for a lack repair. The insurer says it's $2 to, I will pay you $2 for a lack repair. And the arbiter says, based on all this stuff, yeah, 500 seems, seems fair. And the insurer has to pay $500. So that sounds wonderful. It's really great. Unfortunately, I'm going back to my like schoolhouse rock here in, in terms of like how the bill becomes a law. Oh, I'm
1: just a <laughs> bill sitting here on Capitol Hill. Uh, sorry, man. It, it, it Just <laughs> got to, to go email. there. Yeah. <laughs> so the bill isn't done when it's
0: done. So Congress passes this bill. There's a bunch of stuff that it says. And then the Department of Health and Human Services has to Create the regulations around it. The regulations that they set up were, and I'm arguably biased on the physician side here, but they were heavily tilted to benefit the insurer. What that's led to is a series of lawsuits from the Texas Medical Association. They've had four different lawsuits. Two of them have already been settled or decided, sorry, not settled. They've been decided in the Texas Medical Association's favor. So the government has lost each of these lawsuits. But even bigger, what's happened is that groups are losing a lot of money as this stuff is being worked out. And it is very likely that it was a significant part of why Envision went bankrupt now, as opposed to before the No Surprise Act. So-
1: the healthcare delivery side is getting screwed by this, it sounds like. Correct. Are patients somehow getting screwed by this as well? Or are they coming out okay still from the No Surprises Act? So,
0: why would the Department of Health and Human Services make regulations that seem to favor the insurer? And the kind of, if you want to give it a kind of rational actor explanation, it is. That they want to reduce the cost of care. And so if the insurer basically bids down the price of medical care and the government is on the hook for some of that, then the government saves money and patients save money. That's not really how it's going though. Where it's going, and there's tons of evidence on this, is that the insurers are just making more money So, United Healthcare had a bonanza year. Blue Cross Blue Shield is doing very well. The insurers are doing well. And
1: patients, they're out of the middle, but I wouldn't say this is a win for patients. So, there was some news that came out today that had to do with physicians unionizing. Physician unionization has always been a little bit confusing for me because when I was a baby doc, not the Haitian leader, But a young physician. (laughs) So, are you Papa Doc? Is that? I'm just, when I was a junior physician, when I was beginning my career, always gotten the message that docs can't unionize, docs can't go on strike, nurses can, but docs can't. But it sounds like that is not true because docs are unionizing. So, what is the deal? What is the legality of unionization? And then, what is the downstream? effect of that.
0: This is probably the biggest sea change in the emergency medicine workforce right now, which is we have gone over the last 10, 15 years from The physician as owner, as practice owner model to the physician as employee model. So only about a third of emergency physicians have any ownership stake in their practice. So that means that two thirds of emergency physicians are labor, right? if you are labor how do you protect your interests and there are really two there are two ways to protect your interests. one is being willing to change jobs and that's the tech answer to this if you have friends who are developers or designers They probably change jobs every two or three years. That's just average. If you work for Facebook, you expect to then work for Netflix and then work for Amazon and then work for the next one over. And that's just how it is. And they are all protecting their interests by doing that. Or sports, right? So this is obviously very common in in professional sports. So then there's the other way to protect your interests is to unionize. And actually sports do both. They're both unionized and have movement between teams. Why have physicians not unionized in the past? They were owners, they were managers, and they also felt a responsibility to their patients and said, we can't do the thing that union does if we don't come to a negotiation, negotiate agreement, which is to strike. What has changed recently is physician unions have realized that there are ways around both of those challenges. There was actually a ruling with the first emergency medicine attending group in Oregon, and this just happened earlier in, in 2023. The ruling was quite expansive. The National Labor Relations Board allowed every physician in that practice, and it was a practice that that is a hospital-owned practice. Every physician was allowed to be part of that union, which meant that Even those with kind of management titles were allowed to be part of the union. So that essentially opens a door for a physician group where there's always some level of management inside the group going on. Then there's this strike conundrum. And what's changed there is physicians have realized you don't have to go all the way to a strike. In order to have leverage. If you are bargaining collectively with the hospital owners or with an employed, if you're employed by Team Health, which is the second group that unionized was employed by or is employed by, by Team Health, if you're collectively negotiating with them, you have other points of leverage. One of the things that's been talked about is documentation leverage. So you as the physician decide how much revenue is going to come through the door based on things that you write down. If you don't write critical care time, is a patient getting harmed? No No patient is harmed by you not doing critical care time. What physicians realized is there are steps before before strike and they can negotiate as a group stronger than they can negotiate individually. Do you know how it usually plays out. Yeah, so in in talking with some of the physicians in the Oregon group, they've actually found the hospital to be quite receptive so far in that the nurses were unionized before there's this sense, there's this understanding on the hospital side of we have to take unions seriously. That being said, they haven't gotten some of the things that they were hoping to get since there's only been one emergency physician union until today. And now there's a second one. We haven't seen much of the if then part of this. So that's to be really to be determined. On the resident side, though, we have seen resident walkouts. So Elmhurst was the biggest one recently. So the residents at Elmhurst, and you'll remember Elmhurst was the hotspot for COVID. So 2020, March and April, Elmhurst got crushed. There was no evidence on what to do with COVID. There was no evidence on how to best protect yourself because this was a totally novel virus. These residents were literally putting their life on the line every time they walked through the door. Turned out that those residents were getting paid less than residents in the same hospital system who worked at hospitals with better payer mix. And so these residents unionized and they and their demand was back pay and a raise and basically rules that protect them in the future. And initially the health system, and I'm pretty sure it was Mount Sinai, the health system initially didn't, didn't give them what they were looking for. And so they went on strike. Residents have more flexibility because they're still a attendings, at least in theory, behind them who could do the job. Uh, That must have been very interesting to see those attendings trying to do all those resident jobs. But it didn't last long, The the hospital came right back and negotiated with them and, and they got much better terms.
1: What, by your measure, does the emergency medicine job market look like right now? Surprisingly strong. And
0: what I mean by that is this is a little bit of the it is darkest before the dawn phenomenon what has happened in the last 2 years everybody in this country knows that emergency medicine is under incredible strain that emergency physicians are burnt out that's a really hard job that we're doing wait- waiting room medicine boarding psychiatric patients here there and everywhere it is a hard job compensation's going down we're dying of covid what has gone along with that is an attrition rate that actually was higher than anticipated based on recent research from the 2010. So the attrition rate in emergency medicine was more like five to six percent of emergency physicians leaving every year. And the previous estimates were more like three percent, and then the numbers post-COVID are more like seven, eight percent. With numbers even higher for older doctors, and concerningly female emergency physicians. So with that number of physicians leaving over the last several years and patients coming back, so volumes now are a little bit, actually a little bit higher than they were in 2019, so we're back basically on on track. The demand for our services is a little bit up. The number of doctors there to provide those services, despite the increase in residents coming out, is actually decreasing because of this high rate of attrition. What that's led to is a supply-demand mismatch in very specific ways. One is rural. So emergency medicine has been on, or organized emergency medicine has been on this push Really, since the the founding of the specialty to push out non-emergency physicians from emergency departments, we were going to staff all of the ERs and we have succeeded. So year over year, the number of family doctors, the number of ex-surgeons, the number of ex-internists who are in emergency medicine has gone down. Well, a lot of rural sites were being staffed by those family doctors Emergency physicians tend to live in cities by dramatic numbers. And what that's left rural emergency medicine with is a significant undersupply of emergency physicians, which means that if you want to make a lot of money working in rural America, you can do that. That's also led to a revitalization of, of locums. So the locums market in emergency medicine is booming and numbers keep, keep going up. Our pay over the last five years has been, until last year, had been going down. I would be surprised with, with what we're seeing on the attrition side if, the, if pay doesn't go up this year compared to last, 2023 compared to 2022.
1: Leon, what a treat to have you on the show. I'll tell you, pretty much everything we talked about, I was coming in fresh, coming in with nothing. And now I feel I, I feel like I've gone to school. Thank you so much. It's really been a, a
0: pleasure, Rob. This has been a fantastic conversation. And honestly, despite the murkiness of the business of emergency medicine, I've never been more optimistic about the profession. I truly believe that It is darkest before the dawn and we're about to see the dawn of emergency medicine.
1: And that is it for today. And you know what? If you love medicine, but you find the job itself leaves a lot to be desired, I work with docs in your shoes who feel the same way and help them extend their careers and have fun doing it. Can you imagine driving to your next shift? with a feeling of stoke and excitement. And then when you leave for the day, you think to yourself, hey, that was pretty damn great. We can help get you there. And you can reach out to me at roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.